This is Nullius in Verba, a podcast about science, what it is, and what it could be. It's co-hosted by me, Smriti Mehta from UC Berkeley, and me, Daniel Lagens from Eindhoven University of Technology. In this episode, we discuss the accumulation of knowledge and the challenges to building cumulative science, including inconsistent measurement tools, over-reliance on single studies, and the large volume of research publications. Can replications, interdisciplinary collaborations, and prospective meta-analyses help us solve this issue? Are psychological theories aimed at providing the truth with a capital T? are just useful frameworks with a lowercase u? And do most scientists treat their theories like toothbrushes? Enjoy. The purpose of this work is to explain briefly, yet as completely as possible, the development of one essential phase of human civilization which has not yet received sufficient attention. The development of science, that is of systematized positive knowledge. I'm not prepared to say that this development is more important than any other aspect of intellectual progress, for example, than the development of religion, of art or of social justice. But it is equally important, and no history of civilization can be tolerably complete, which does not give considerable space to the explanation of scientific progress. If we had any doubts about this, it would suffice to ask ourselves what constitutes the essential difference between our and earlier civilizations. Throughout the course of history in every period, and in almost every country, we find a small number of saints of great artists, of men, of science. The saints of today are not necessarily more saintly than those of a thousand years ago. Our artists are not necessarily greater than those of early Greece. They are more likely to be inferior. And of course, our men of science are not necessarily more intelligent than those of old. Yet one thing is certain. Their knowledge is at once more extensive and more accurate. The acquisition and systematization of positive knowledge is the only human activity which is truly cumulative and progressive. So this is an opening statement from George Sarton, uh, who was a chemist and a historian, and he is considered the founder of the discipline of history of uh, science. So this is from 1927, uh, the introduction of his book, An Introduction, to the history of science. <laughs> yes. and, and you can see that he starts with what is also the topic of today, that science is cumulative. Mm-hmm. There's progression, we build forward, and that's why we, we know much more than we did before, even though artists might be the same and all these other things don't really change, but science is the only thing which is cumulative. Well, history is also cumulative. Uh, Things change, things get added, I guess. Um, But progress in science, I think, that is sort of uh, a unique characteristic. So it doesn't just change, it doesn't just go on, but it becomes, what, better, more truth-like? I mean, however you want to call it. Right. But isn't that, so sort of, there's, I mean, when you read about sort of science being cumulative, 
Mm. One of the criticisms against that, everybody brings up Thomas Kuhn. Mm. Um, yeah. And at least what the idea that people got from it was that, oh, science is not cumulative. Whether he meant it or not, I guess, is up for debate. But mm. what people mm. got from it was that theories are not sort of superseded. They're sort of yeah. thrown yeah. away, right? And then you have this paradigm shift so that it's maybe not cumulative because mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. have just paradigm shifts where you give up your old ways of thinking and take up new. So I don't know. Some people might argue yeah. that science is actually not cumulative. Yeah, nice, nice. Uh, yeah. Immediately getting into the hardcore <laughs> philosophy of science stuff here. Thomas Kuhn, structure of scientific revolutions. Yes, or or as philosophers say, if you want to hang with the cool kids, you can just say structure. I oh, think, you know, they they <laughs> nice. like just abbreviate those books to one word, and everybody knows it's such a famous book. Everybody knows what you talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's true. That's true. So this is an old fashioned and I would say even a positivist kind of view. Right. We're talking 1927. So there's clearly an idea that science progresses. And you are completely right that later, you know, maybe uh, 50 years later, um, philosophers started to think, yeah, is this even true? Is there really progress? Or how, how would we know if there's progress? Can we ever know? Is it there? Yeah. Yeah, and I think the so there's this um, interesting article, a book chapter actually, um, mm-hmm. by Bernard D'Espagnat, Is Science Cumulative? A Physicist mm-hmm. Viewpoint, in which he mentions a quote or this section from um, the mathematician who's also a philosopher, Henry Poincare, a quote by him where he says, Men of the world wonder how short lived our scientific theories actually are. Mm-hmm. After but a few years' prosperity, they see them being dropped one after the other. Ruins, they observe, accumulate upon ruins. They foresee that presently fashionable theories will soon meet a similar fate, from which they infer that none of them is trustworthy. It is what they Mm. call a failure of science. Mm. So here he makes the the claim that, oh, maybe, and this is from 1902, so this is even Mm. earlier, and this he sort of likens to sort of the idea that people got from Kuhn and Feyerabend, who thought that, oh, yeah, you have these revolutions and then received theories are replaced by other notions. And so people interpreted that as being that science is not cumulative. But if you continue on with his reasoning, Poincaré actually wrote further, no theory seemed more firmly grounded than Fresnel's one, which attributed light to the motion of ether. Mm-hmm. However, Maxwell's one is now preferred. Does that mean that Fresnel's theory was of no value? No, for Fresnel's purpose was not to know whether or not ether really exists, whether or not it is constituted of atoms and whether these atoms really move in this or that way. It was to correctly predict the optical phenomena. Now, Fresnel's theory still allows for such predictions, today just as before Maxwell. Its differential equations remain true. They can be integrated by the same procedure as before. And the outcomes from these integrations still preserve their full value. Um, and so I think when you talk about sort of theories being replaced, I don't know how you mm-hmm. think about this, but to me, it's always. I think we've mentioned this before on the podcast that scientific theories are, yeah, they they never they don't die, right? They're always just replaced by newer theories. You cannot mm-hmm. replace something without presenting something that is going to give you a better understanding of the world. That doesn't mean that 
earlier theories were completely useless or were totally giving them up, right? The, the example I sometimes give is like, well, we still teach Newtonian mechanics to children, mm-hmm. right? Even mm-hmm. though it's we know that it's not completely accurate, it's still a pretty good, good approximation and it still has value, right? You cannot have mm-hmm. stuff coming out, even if you replace it with a better theory, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the, the stuff from earlier is not useful or wasn't useful in getting us to the to the better understanding where yeah. we are now. Yeah. And I, I think the question here is if these different theories that um, build on each other or sometimes one new theory replaces an old one, mm-hmm. whether they get us closer to the truth. So there's uh, this very, again, fancy philosophical term for it, verisimilitude. <laughs> yeah. Which means truth likeness. And um, uh, this is one response to work like um, Feyerabend or mm-hmm. Kuhn, that they are basically on the side of, yeah, there is just no, yeah, maybe not even a truth. Or I think Kuhn uh, walked back on some of these things in his original book, by the way. Later on, he's like, mm. yeah, I didn't mean it's so extreme as some yeah. people are now interpreting what I've written. Yeah. But um, but if you look at um, the evaluation of theoretical progress, yeah, very often there are fixed things things Mm -hmm. are improved but people do think that the newer version is closer to the truth because Mm -hmm. it can do more it can explain more and um in that sense i think many people would say there is uh, in practice progress uh sometimes not right so sometimes a theory dies it was wrong and um People just give up on it, you know? I think sometimes, in the worst case, maybe an entire uh, research area might just hmm. stop because people are like, okay, no, there's nothing here. So so science is not always progressive. Sometimes it just dies. It happens. Um, but a lot of our theories that we keep building on, yeah, are just variations or better variations of something we had 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, but sometimes our dead ends. Um, yeah. Do, but do you def, do you see a difference between I mean physical science sciences and biological sciences and social sciences? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like in the social sciences there is a lot more of dead ends or stuff mm-hmm. that's just fashionable for a little bit and then stops being fashionable and so nobody talks about it anymore. Yeah. It's a very interesting point. Why? Because I feel there are differences between these disciplines as well, uh, and I think. It's probably very educational to think why that would be the case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Do you have any thoughts about why maybe the discussion about whether there is progress is a bit more something in the social sciences than in a, a field like physics or something? Why there is less progress in social sciences? Or at least where we, where we feel there's less progress, where we would talk more about a topic like this. Less accumulation of knowledge. Um, yeah, or we we doubt it more. We we have more discussions about are we uh, a cumulative science or not. Whereas I think for physicists, maybe sometimes they talk about, it, but may, maybe more specifically. I mean, I've heard people say, "Hey, is um, particle physics progressing? Are there new discoveries? Or hasn't you know a lot happened there?" But but they don't really talk about the entire discipline. But we we do a bit more. I feel. Okay, well, here we should we should make a distinction between progress and accumulation. Like if we're talking mm-hmm, about cumulative mm-hmm. science, because you could have, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you could have something like particle physics where there was a lot of accumulation of knowledge when stuff when there was a lot of unknowns, and once you reach mm-hmm. a point where there is much fewer unknowns, then it just stalls because now okay, there's there are fewer particles to you know elementary yeah. particles to figure out. That doesn't mean, but that doesn't mean that they've given up on everything that they've built earlier, right? Nobody's contesting that electrons exist or neutrons exist. 
they yeah. might get to that point, but nobody's contesting that at the moment. Whereas in our field, it's it almost yeah. feels like people are like, no, you know, whatever our versions of electrons might be, people are like, yeah, no, that's that's not replicable. Uh, mm-hmm. That's fake news. Um, so <laughs> I think it's a yeah. little bit different in that we, I think there's fewer things that we consider absolutely rock solid yeah. in, in our discipline than we would in something like physics or biology or yeah. chemistry. It might be because it's a bit more fragmented, our field. So psychology, I mean, we study so many different things, which I think maybe is something we want to reflect on a bit because that hinders, I think, uh, mm. a cumulative science as well because so many people are doing so many different things. Um, but there are some theories that are pretty solid, you know, some work we, um, I think, are pretty happy with. I don't know, something like... a work on working memory i feel that uh you know we have pretty good models of working memory probably i don't know um yeah but uh some other fields there's a lot less certainty that we're on the right track and this will still be around in 50 years and useful in 50 years and and sometimes you see um something like mirror neurons for example i don't oh, know if you remember yeah. this i was when just I was thinking a- about that yeah yeah they were pretty faddish like i think mid 20 yeah 2010s 2008 and i remember that being talked about a lot and then during grad school i even talked to my advisor who was a cognitive neuroscientist and i was like why does nobody talk about mirror neurons anymore (laughs) where did they go yeah Yeah, where did they go so i think that that sometimes can just happen and and maybe there's still some people working on it but it's definitely not you know it changed a lot and and maybe i maybe there's just not so much and i feel that happens a bit more in yeah yeah psychology i think yeah. Than in mm. other disciplines. And it yeah, I'm not sure what it is about our discipline because it's yes, we also we study a lot of fragmented things, but we also all study things that we've been studying for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's stuff that's part of you know, not just like not just psychology, but stuff that gets touched upon in like literature and in art and in just popular media, right? Like it's we study things that are like if you're somebody that's studying happiness, okay, it's not a topic that's new to anybody. <laughs> so much has been no. right, and I think people have yeah. so many different, and that's I think a difficult thing with psychology, right? Like everybody has an idea about what it means or what it is, or if you have the question of like, yeah. does more money make you happier or not? I mean, we still haven't mm-hmm. resolved it, and it seems like mm-hmm. every couple of years there's some new study that comes up that is making. A slightly different claim, and you're just not sure mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what what the truth is with a capital yeah. T, if such a thing could could exist. I guess so. Maybe it yeah. is. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that it's just harder to come up with laws the way you can in, say, physics mm-hmm. in psychology, mm-hmm. right? So some something akin to like a universal law. So maybe that's yeah. one of the issues is that it's not that easy to come up with universal laws and psychology. There's some things that maybe hold up to that, right? Maybe some something in judgment and decision making, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of biases that show up consistently. But other than that, the closer the closer you get to perception, perception, cognition, they're, they're yeah, pretty good, pretty good laws in some yeah. of those areas, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting why that is the case. And maybe uh, there are two things worth mentioning. The first is um, that we like to make a lot of different theories. 
so it seems like there's no progress because we have a lot of different theories and people seem to be making a lot of theories. Yeah. And the second maybe is that um, if you want to figure something out very well, it requires a huge amount of research. Yeah. Um, after the initial sort of groundbreaking stuff and people don't really want to do this work. The, the more boring stuff of figuring out, okay, so how much does it generalize and what are the regularities? So a lot of data collection that becomes a little bit less exciting, but has to be done to get a thorough understanding. Um, yeah. Maybe that just just not done that often because, yeah, then people move on to more exciting things right. or more novel things. Yeah. yeah, because that gets incentivized yeah. in the way yeah. currently things work. I will add a third thing to this which mm -hmm. is mentioned in the article you shared with me by Walter Michel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a blog post, right? As it's a blog, blog post uh, for, for APS. Mm -hmm. um, I think he wrote it as the editor. And it says January 1st, 2009, mm -hmm. becoming a cumulative science, where he mentions, and I thought this was a very good point, he doesn't use the word measurement, but mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. he's talking about using common tools, that's what came to my mm -hmm. mind is this idea yeah. that we don't use the common tools, even though he does mention, of course, that there are certain batteries of tests that have been used consistently over time, right? Like you have the Rorschach test with people scoring at now. You have intelligence tests as another one, right? You have the same one being used over and over again, but it doesn't mm -hmm. happen as consistently as it should, right? If you think about astronomers, I mean, they yeah. all use the same, tel right? Like somebody had to develop a telescope, that's their tool, and then everybody uses that same tool to do yeah. their studies. And so I think that gives it an amount of sort of consistency across yeah. different observations. And so you you do need tools that are valid and well studied so that you can get accurate measurements, mm -hmm. which I, yeah. is a, such a basic thing in all the other time. But somehow we have just not gotten to that point where people realize, yeah. okay, yeah, we, we all need to be working a lot more on first developing good, solid tools for the things that we're me trying to measure. Otherwise, yeah. there's you cannot have a cumulative science, right? If you use your five-item measure that you have created and I use my five-item mm -hmm. measure that I've created, okay, there's no way yeah. to, to accumulate knowledge that way, right? Yeah, and, and I thought this was a very good point that um, there's a lot of variability in our measures. We don't mm -hmm. really use the same things. And I think right. he also mentioned that um, he talks to a colleague in another field in medicine or something and uh, asks, so do you have the same issues? And they're like, well, yeah, Not but we really got this part figured out. We all <laughs> right. use, right? And this is often true, like in yeah. medicine, for example. I mean, of course you have measures everybody's interested in, like mm -hmm. whether people die or not, which is yeah. a very... Well, a pretty easy thing to measure. Um, <laughs> but there's also blood pressure and right. I don't know, a lot of sort of indicators of health that are measured consistently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we don't do this as much. I has also had to think about measurement. There was a very recent paper that I reread um, and um, uh, the title of it is Psychological Measures Aren't Toothbrushes. That's the title, um, because we will get back to this toothbrush issue, because it's also it's also in this blog post by Michelle. So we're definitely talking about the same thing and yeah. these authors. Uh, this is a paper by Malta Elson, Ian Say, Time mm -hmm. Al-Salti, and Ruben Arslan. Mm -hmm. It just came out. And um, yeah, they also point out this problem of uh, our lack of standardization. Mm-hmm. So we don't standardize right. our um, measures. Um, they give some guidelines of how to pr improve this. Mm -hmm. um, they have the standardization of behavior research guidelines. 
Um, I'll quickly just mention the things that they think we should be doing more to have standard Mm -hmm. measures. Mm -hmm. Um, So first you have to demonstrate non-redundancy. If you want to add a measure, you have to say why, you know. yeah, there's just, uh, we have too many of them. Um, if you use it, you have to demonstrate that you adhere to the protocol. You measure things as it was supposed to be um, intended to be used. Mm-hmm. If you modify measures, uh, mm-hmm. you have to justify why. can be justified, of course, but people are doing it rather um, opportunistically, according to their other work as well, um, which ties into another re- recommendation they make to pre-register how you measure things. Mm-hmm. So you specify it in advance. Um, You have to report all your measures. That's actually such a silly thing, but so frustrating. Talking about cumulative science, a lot of times people publish measures, Mm -hmm. but they don't share the entire set of items. (laughs) And then you have to go and do crazy stuff. Like you have to email them, you have to ask for them. And then they say, oh, well, if you want to use my measure, you have to make me a co-author on your I've heard this recently. I talked to Mm. somebody who went through this. Yes, somebody had published a measure and it was a good measure. Well done. They really, you know, okay. And they put in some work. Great, of course. Mm -hmm. But then this person wanted to be basically get a lot of, yeah, I think even co-authorship on when Hmm. when the measure would be used in the future. And and these people were like, "Uh, we don't want to do that. That's not how science is supposed to work. We don't think so. Although it's done a lot, you know, or you have to buy a scale. But anyway, what they ended up doing is, Mm -hmm. well, if we can't use that measure because this person wants to be a co-author and everything, you know what we'll do? We just get a couple of items from a couple of other measures. We'll briefly test them and we'll just use those. I'm sure they'll mm. be equally valid. But this, of course, gets into the way of all using the same measure, right? Yeah, that's such a interesting conundrum. And I haven't thought about it before, but what do you think you should do? I mean, if, if you have spent, yeah. let's say, years and years developing and honing a measure... Yeah. Like imagine if yeah. you've developed a telescope yeah. or a microscope that was just like state of the art, really good. I mean, yeah, it's not well, th- crazy to think would... that they want some kind of no return on their investment. Completely right. It's an interesting discussion. I mean, first of all, f- I, I can tell you how I uh, effectively responded when my uh-huh. uh, colleague mentioned this. I got so angry. I thought it was so like, oh, wow, this is really getting in the way of good science. But it is a very interesting question. What do we do with this? If it would have been uh, um, some sort of device, Mm -hmm. they would have patented it. Right. And maybe commercialized it and sold it. And then then we would just buy it. So sometimes measures are bought. Yeah, like the, you know, the Weschler intelligence scales, Mm -hmm. you cannot just use them, right? They're all proprietary stuff yeah. i mean you have to buy them to be able to use those batteries so people do do yeah. that yeah but and and i i do understand that there has to be there's so much investment in a good measure yeah which is much more than if i write a paper or if right. i do an empirical study um yeah. so i i understand that the people who spend years making a measure want to have proportional sort of reward for it and our mm-hmm, system doesn't mm-hmm. give it to them yeah so I, I do understand sort of this response yeah. at the same time it's just horrible for yeah this, what we're talking about standardized measure use so we need to fix it in some way <laughs> yeah we we totally do yeah i mean th- you yeah there's some people who will not share it but a lot of stuff is available on online yeah. as well and i think um yeah it's a interesting question of yeah how do we incentivize the sort of sharing and making it open and public 
I mean, if you think about it, a lot of the stuff does get funded by public funding. So I do think we yeah. owe it to make it publicly available for people to be able to use. Um, I agree. Now, now yeah. then it's just a matter of getting more people to use the same standard yes. measures because that's not the practice, right? Yeah. And then when you get into experimental research, there's all these paradigms mm-hmm. and there's just no consistency there at all, right? Mm-hmm. Those aren't even treated like measurements, which I think yeah. they should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, also, and it has the same problem. So if you create a manipulation, an mm-hmm. experimental manipulation, whether it's mood or cognitive load, or uh-huh. some might be used quite a lot, but you're right. I mean, there should be extensive maybe manipulation checks and figure out when it works best, if it mm-hmm. works the same for everybody. So sort of like, yeah, sort of reliability, validity aspect of the right. manipulation. And, and have and a that protocol is, of like, yeah, how to yeah. use it. Because even with measures, if you're, if you're doing a good mm-hmm. job, you should be making it very clear. Yeah, when are you supposed to use it? How are you supposed to use it? For, for which mm-hmm. populations is this valid? Um, yeah. And having a proper yeah. protocol for their use. Yeah. And and I think that is uh, also not rewarded and quite boring work. So it's not done a lot. But I have to think of a manipulation that was done in actually in ego depletion research, Mm. where people have to solve a lot of mathematical sums, which Uh depletes them. Uh-huh. And uh, this is how it was done in many psychology departments. But then yeah. a colleague of mine replicated the study. Uh, I mean, it didn't replicate, but she wow. tried to, you know, replicate it, do mm-hmm. the same study again. And um, but and she also gave all our engineering students mathematical sums, which were supposed to deplete them. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that our population loves doing. They enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, hey, do you have some more at the end? Do you have some more? They're like, no, you're supposed to be depleted now. <laughs> so <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So some things don't work the same way, just like measures don't. But yeah. Th- so it's a good point that you bring up of our manipulations. Mm-hmm. There are some some people writing about this that we sp- should spend much more time uh, critically examining our manipulations. Um, yeah. Exactly. And and it could of course be that a failure to replicate is due to a failure to manipulate something. Right. That actually happens a lot. That happens mm-hmm. a lot. So I mean, it's completely true. Um, uh, I mean, in the lab, they try to do everything else. You know, this was really the version uh, where they have to bake cookies and there are these uh, brownies, you know, freshly baked brownies that people uh-huh. can eat. Or oh, nice. if they have dieting goals or something, they have to have a healthy snack. But if they're uh-huh. depleted, they're supposed to eat the brownies. Mm. So, yeah, I do remember the whole lab smelled like brownies for like oh, weeks, which God. was very enjoyable. Yeah. My uh, ego but yeah, would definitely be depleted in that setting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't need to be depleted to just go for the brownies. Yeah. <laughs> But, but um, mm. this brings me to an interesting question. I don't know if you want to continue, if you have something more to say here, but I did want to ask you what you think. Like now that we're moving in this direction of doing more replications, there might not be a lot of replications as we talked about in the last mm-hmm. episode, but we do do more replications now than we did, or at least more stuff gets out in the public eye, right? We see mm-hmm. a lot more replications. Do you think that's helping the cumulative? Yeah science aspect or is it yeah 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 well as you you mentioned so i mean um we need things to be reliable if we want to build on them so Mm -hmm. that's a very basic assumption it's also mentioned mentioned by michelle um he mentions that we need to have robust replicable and also consequential findings Mm. so it's not just good enough if it's robust and replicable it also needs to matter for something which Mm -hmm. i think is a good addition um and yeah, he also mentions that um, um, a lot of failures to replicate are not published, and this is very problematic. Right. Um, I was 
also listening to a talk by Dorothy Bishop. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we'll link to it. It's a talk, uh, Why We Need Cumulative Science. Mm. And she also points out that uh, a lot of young researchers are trying to build on stuff, mm -hmm. but then they fail because it turns out that uh, either due to publication bias, they're building on a type 1 error, or sometimes with some p-hacking, it's even inflated rate of type 1 errors. So, But anyway, yeah, that this is a problem, especially for younger researchers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, of course, an aspect of this, of cumulative science, that I think we've been more aware of and working on in the last decade, mm -hmm. uh, replication and the robustness of the findings. So that should be a good thing, right? If we've worked a little bit more on the robustness of the findings, we should be able to build on them. Whether people still do it is another question, but at least there is something to build on, right? That's important. Don't you agree? Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, mm -hmm. But I, yeah, the only thing I worry about is that I feel like replicating stuff, and this is just my, this is my strong opinion for the day, but I do think replications should be done by people who want to build on stuff. Mm -hmm. Um. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, if I'm like, oh, I want to study this, then okay, then you rep try to replicate the stuff. And if it doesn't replicate, then you know, okay, maybe this is not the path that we should go go down. Um, yeah. But if yeah. you're just doing like one-off replications and stuff you're not even interested in, I I'm not sure that is super helpful. Maybe it is. Maybe I could be totally no. wrong about it. Um, no, but I, think, I, mean, I think you make a good point because for, for a cumulative science, the idea is that you really figure out also, mm -hmm. when things don't replicate, why they don't replicate. Right, and exactly. M Michel says this as well. Um, he writes, um, but equally important, at least in some cases, examination of these replication failures bring out salient differences, not explained by one-to-one -one relationships between mm -hmm. variables, but rather by complex networks of interactions. So, I mean, fair enough, right? Yeah. This is just sometimes true. And, and that requires... Um, that you build on it, that, that you want to commit to figuring out why this didn't replicate. And I think we've reached the point where we're doing more replications, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think even, even if people don't build on them, you know, we just yeah. need, I mean. More replications. Yeah. We just need I more. Mean, yeah. But ideally, you're completely right. They're done by people who really are Wanna committed to building on out. them. And, right. and if they don't replicate, then figure out why. And that, that is, again, part of this cumulative science. Yeah. But it's rare. That part is very rare. Replications are rare. And then figuring out why things didn't replicate and spend all the resources on it, that's even rarer, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Which I think is an issue, right? Because, yeah, you want to ideally figure out yeah why you're not getting the effect or if if this isn't working out or if ego depletion mm -hmm. stuff isn't replicating mm -hmm. does it actually mean that the theory is not true or are we missing something are the manipulations just weak right like what is actually or and what is the, the phenomena that you know yeah. that is yeah. at, the of, at the heart of it like you ideally should want to figure that out i think that's yeah. that gets sort of missed a little bit yeah and I think it is part of the same problem of all these other things that we will talk about, why we don't have cumulative science. Mm. The investment, the time investment and the reward structure are just not in line with it. Because if you really want to figure out why something didn't replicate, I mean, let's take your uh, case uh, seriously, right? Let's just say, hey, if you replicate something, you have to be committed to figuring out why it doesn't replicate. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, 
You're not asking people just to do one study where they repeat somebody else's study. It's not novel. Mm -hmm. They don't get a high impact publication maybe, but okay, you're just asking them to do it. But no, now if it doesn't replicate, they're basically married to this research line, maybe for a decade, because how long can it take to figure out, oh, is it this moderator? Is it this moderator? No, is it this moderator? Oh, oh, it was this moderator, (sighs) 17 studies later. I mean, so that is asking a lot. I'm not disagreeing with you that in an ideal world, this is what's supposed to happen. But I can understand, given the reward structures in science, nobody is going to, well, very few people will do this. It happens sometimes, but rare. Well, but if you think about it, not in terms of, oh, just this one study that I'm going to replicate. And if I can't, I will just Mm -hmm. dig deeper and deeper into like why this one study didn't replicate. But say you're interested in working memory or some niche aspect of working memory you could spend a lot i mean if you're genuinely curious about it then ideally you should want to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on right like i and that's the thing right i think it should you should be genuinely curious about Mm -hmm. what's going on what the truth is otherwise it's tedious and boring but but not (laughs) if you're actually curious about it Right. No, no, you're right, you're right. And this is maybe why Michelle calls this also, yeah, robust, replicable and consequential findings. Like you you have to study things you think matter and then you should be willing to figure out yeah. what's what's behind it, you know, right. what's going on. So exactly, yeah. we need more research lines where people just really want to know what happens. They find right. this consequential mm-hmm. and, and not just like, oh, somebody published this effect. I'm just gonna check if it replicates or not. I mean, again, it's good that we do it, but ideally... We want to commit to figuring all of this out, yeah. but that's difficult to do. Yeah. And I that, and that's um, right, right? And if we take this approach, then then we would have more replications, right? Yeah. Because then you wouldn't have people who are just... There are people now who are just doing replications who just do replications, which is also very valuable. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that. But if you tell mm-hmm. everybody, okay, before you can go down this path, like, you know, if you're interested in this, just replicate some of the stuff that's done already, and then you can continue working on it, then every new student would have to run replications first. Yeah. Then we would have yeah. more replications by people and, who and might be people, curious about, yeah, who would continue on trying to figure things out. Yeah. Yeah. And many people would work on the same topic, uh, right. try to figure it out. So, you know, we would just build in this um, practice more systematically. But yeah. I think that is the problem. So many people don't work on the same uh, uh, problems. And <laughs> yeah. so yeah. we talked about measurement, like yeah. standardization of measurement. Mm-hmm. But another is standardization of the the theories we work in. Like, are we working on the same theoretical models? And this is, so we we mentioned that this paper um, was psychological measures aren't toothbrushes. And Michelle (laughs) mentioned toothbrushes. Mm -hmm, So maybe mm -hmm. we can explain this toothbrush problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, this is a quote, quote by Watkins uh, from 1984. I think Michelle has heard of this quote he doesn't remember who uh, wrote it but i looked up the original and and Uh it's quite interesting so i'll read some of it but this is watkins 1984 and he says a theory is a bit like someone else's toothbrush it is fine for that individual's use uh, but for the rest of us well we would just rather not thank you Mm. and I, i knew about this so like this is your theory it's your thing i don't want to touch it i want to have my own right right But the whole commentary where this comes from is actually very interesting. I would recommend people reading it. We'll link to it. And it's interesting because it's also, it's a comment, uh, a behavioral brain sciences paper. Hmm. Uh, I think the original is by Broadbent. So it's a 
memory model. Mm-hmm. Broadbent has proposed a new model for mm-hmm. memory, mm-hmm. which he thought was very good and interesting and uh, um, summarized a lot of other findings in the literature mm-hmm. and uh, integrated uh, different theoretical viewpoints, you know, sort of yeah. like what we want to do, cumulative work, mm-hmm. basically. And instead of criticizing the model, Watkins writes, which is what you do in behavioral brain sciences, you write a, a commentary on the original paper, but this is sort of like a meta commentary. So Watkins is basically saying, lovely work, lovely work, but nobody's gonna do it. Nobody's gonna use it. And mm. I'll just read it because it's kind of interesting. Okay, so mm. here, here it goes. Mm. Having done as much as if not more than anyone else to launch the contemporary information processing approach to cognitive psychology, Broadband would appear particularly well qualified to propose a common conceptual framework as a way of bringing order to the enormous volume of relatively specific memory theorizing. And his proposal, the Maltese Cross, is perhaps as broad and interesting as any we have. Nevertheless, it is unlikely to succeed. Few will adopt it. So this is his comment. Mm. And then he explains why he thinks this. Mm. Consider why the more specific theories have proliferated so. In my view, the main reason is to be found in the richness of the information processing metaphor. Elevating the rememberer of from a telephone exchange to a computer has enormously increased the degrees of freedom available for theory construction. Indeed, this freedom has given all researchers the luxury of having their very own theory, complete, incidentally, with sufficient implicit features to render it immune from the perils of empirical research. Memory researchers are not considered to have come of age until they can boast a personal theory. And some even rise to become the owners of several theories. Yeah? Uh, so th- so he, he's not criticizing mm. the whole model. He's actually saying, well, well done, Broadband. I mean, you are in the perfect place to integrate these diverse theories. Mm. You've done a very good job and nobody will adopt it because of this, because they all need their own little theory. And then um, in the end of the comment comes this quote of a toothbrush. Yeah, people just uh, thank you, but no, I will keep keep my own. So it's so nice that you don't really often see this in these behavioral brain sciences uh, papers that somebody ignores sort of the content of the paper and and goes meta and says, yeah, but you know, this is not how science works. We don't want an integrative theory. Nobody wants to use your integrated theory. (laughs) Yeah, that is so interesting. So there's a question of, let's say, what we think working memory is. Mm -hmm. And there you can't have multiple theories that just exist. In the sense that we think it's one thing. If we agree that it's one thing, then it has to be one thing. And somebody has to be Mm -hmm. more right than somebody else, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, But then mm -hmm. if you think about, for example, like in English, like you would have certain critical frameworks. You can have like a Freudian framework. You can have a feminist, right? Like you can have these frameworks Mm -hmm, that sort mm -hmm. of exist that are sort of useful as tools for looking at a, a piece of literature with a certain light right so it's not that one is more correct than others they're just frameworks that can exist you know simultaneously that are just useful for looking at things from a different perspective so so sometimes i wonder whether you know our theories are more (laughs) like those frameworks where it's just kind of a useful thing that we use to sort of you know label things and right but we're not saying that it's actually something that is telling us oh what something you know what i mean 
I want to send these fire emoticons, you know, like <laughs> the fire one, like the flame, like, wow, like, I mean, exactly. Wow. I mean, this is it. I mean, because this is the, the question we should ask ourselves. Are our theories descriptions of the truth? And are we trying to make them more accurate? Or yeah. are they just sort of meta fake yeah. metaphors that we use to to talk about something and keep going and keep doing our little thing? Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, to me, yeah. that's what it feels like sometimes. If ever everybody's like, I'm going to have my own theory, you can't all be saying that, hey, I think I have the truth. You're just like, yeah, hey, this is my, you know, interpretation of yeah. <laughs> the facts. And here we go. Yeah. It's it's a very, very good point. Very interesting. Because you would also think if you really care about the truth, you would be more engaged with all those other theories in testing your theory against those others. Right. If you really thought you were right, yeah, you you would go out and say, no, I think I can test my theory against yours yeah. and I'll show that my predictions work. And that also does not seem to happen as much. People just use their theory to talk about a topic through their own framework that they like yeah, and, and maybe just popularize it, you know? It, right. It's not that we test it. Uh, theories don't become more adopted because we test them against other ones and they earn their merit, but it's often more popularity. I mean, you just write a popular science book about it and then everybody knows about your theory. And then it just gets adopted as... A, and again, I, like I'm saying, right, they can be useful and you see a lot of it, right? People, words certainly become that come from psychology, like certainly become faddish and everybody's using them. So they can be kind of useful... In, mm -hmm. For the general public to sort of label certain things, right? I mean, in burnout, I'm sure, was not a thing before. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. And I think it was actually a, a researcher at um, Berkeley who sort of popularized that, that line of research. But it's still kind of a useful framework. But what you're mm -hmm. saying is, I mean, of course, people should be doing that. It also just sounds so difficult, doesn't it? To mm -hmm. first, like, know what the lay of the land is and then be like, okay, this is what a competing theory would predict this is what my theory would predict and then you have to figure mm -hmm. out how to test it in such a rigorous way that you can clearly know yeah. which one is correct and not and that just sounds very very difficult it is very difficult it takes a huge amount of time yeah um and i think there are an increasing number of papers where people are trying this so you're mm -hmm. seeing more people uh, one is actually i think in working memory research um I think, where a lot of people got together and say, mm -hmm. okay, my theory makes predictions about this and mm -hmm. about this and about this, but it doesn't make predictions about this. And everybody went through their theories like this. So it was mm -hmm. sort of like a consensus meeting. Mm -hmm. Like what do, they all agreed. They had slightly different theories. They had mm -hmm. a lot and too many, but they agreed <laughs> like, okay, let's all get together and we're not gonna test them yet, but mm -hmm. we're gonna at least list. Mm -hmm which things our theories make predictions about so that, yeah, somebody could develop tests between these theories about those things. So it, exactly this sort of hard work of getting together and saying, okay, so how could we make progress among all these uh, theories? And I think that's a great signal that you say, no, these are not just frameworks that we like to use to talk about our topic. Mm -hmm. No, we think they should be tested eventually against right. each other. And Probably one of them is more truth-like than the others. Hmm. So uh, let's just work out how we would even go about testing this. And yeah. you see this a bit a bit more. It's still very rare, and I wish more people would do it, but uh, at least it happens sometimes. And there I would say that is part of a cumulative science. That looks yeah. pretty good to me. 
And that, I think, is such a good link to when we talked about the consensus meetings, right? We do need to Mm -hmm. maybe have more of this where we come together and be like, yeah, which domains are more important to where we should do this kind of exercise, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like where this kind of an exercise would be useful for for people to come together and be like, oh, these are important topics. Here are all the theories that exist within this domain. Now let's, you know, try to figure out what each of them predicts and try to sort of map the nominological networks of all these theories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and getting together. So this is this would be the case in really theoretical research what you need to do. You get together yeah. um all together like this and you discuss it. Um now you don't always need to do theories. One nice quote in this blog post by the way that I liked, um Amos Tversky came by. Of course, uh, yeah. we already uh-huh. had him in the anti-creativity letters. Yeah. And uh, but but here um Michel has an anecdote about Amos Tversky that somebody says, uh, yeah, but what about a theory in, in response to a talk that uh, Tversky gave? Mm-hmm. And then Tversky answers, uh, he says, theories, he says, can offer a lot, but they are something that we should get to after we have a lot of data and we should be very careful when we suggest them. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another thing, like don't just make up theories out of nowhere. Right. Uh, you have to be very careful about creating them. You have to have first a lot of data to mm-hmm. propose good theory. And I think, yeah, many people uh, are rewarded by making a theory. Uh, so they come up with them very rapidly without having a lot of data sometimes, right? We use yeah. it really to... Yeah. And this is, I mean, we're more susceptible to it in so in the social sciences, I think, right? Because people see other people and they have observed the world all the time, mm-hmm. right? So everybody mm-hmm. has a theory about what th- things should be like. Whereas if you were studying, yeah, bacteria, maybe you wouldn't have a theory about how they will act. Whereas if yeah. you were studying people, you might have. But here's where I, I mean, I, I completely agree with Tversky, right? That you your theory should be based on facts. So you should first go and collect facts. And then Mm -hmm. base your theories on them, which is absolutely Mm -hmm. right. The tricky thing, of course, is that something like measurement is not theory free, right? You cannot, like, in in, at least in our discipline, you cannot just go around collecting facts without some some theories or some hypothesis, right? I think I make this point often, but it's like if you were studying, so if you wanted to study self control, you first have to specify what do you mean by self-control before you yeah. can go and study it. And that requires a theory about what it is. So it's it's sort of a yeah. circular... A back and forth. Yeah. It's a back and forth between the two, of course. And yeah, of course. Yeah. And when you get the facts, once you get empirical data, you should ideally be refining your theory of what's yeah. over, right? Like, so it should be exactly, it should be sort of a cyclical thing where you integrate the empirical evidence into your theory and adapt it over time, which which will first allow you to sort of improve your measure enough to where you can say it validly measures what you think it measures and then go out and collect data that yeah. correlates it to something else out in the world. But this this refining step that you mentioned, I think that is really the the thing that should happen, happen. but often doesn't happen. Doesn't, yeah. And I remember, I mean, I might write a paper about this once, but I remember um, reading through a literature mm-hmm. um, and I would read a paper and then in the paper there was the first study was a main effect and then the second study was an interaction effect. So Mm -hmm. there was not just a main effect, but it was qualified by a second factor. And you would just be like, oh, hmm, okay, kind of interesting that there's this second factor and it depends Uh on the second factor, I guess so. Now, of course, looking back, you'd be like, yeah, you didn't predict this. This was just exploratory research and this popped up. Okay. And you made a story around it. Uh Okay. 
But then these same authors, a year later, they Mm -hmm. would publish a different paper. They completely ignored this factor (laughs) that was in study two. They just went back to the main effect, but now there's a a second factor that also moderates it. And you're just like, but but, wait, wait, what what happened to the previous factor that was so important (laughs) and that you said like theoretically matters? And now you don't even take it along. And so there would not be... Uh, cumulative science even mm. within a research line of the same person whereas Yikes. what you say what they should do is they take their theory they refine it you know mm-hmm. you refine it you determine if this right. factor goes in or not but you don't just talk about it whenever it makes a result significant And but, yeah. but this would happen across papers and you'd really be like it's so blatant if you just read these papers one in after succession. another you're like yeah What's going on here? You know, they're just yeah. telling stories, right? It's just uh, yeah. just telling yeah. stories. Just getting stuff published. That's the yeah. main thing. But here's an interesting thing, and this might be sort of more focused on our discipline. Um, mm. But there is this interesting special issue from Psychological Methods in 2009. Mm-hmm. And the guest okay. editor was our friend Patrick Kern, who's one of the co-hosts mm-hmm. of The Quantitude. It's called Multi-Study Methods for Building Accumulative Psychological Science. And he also mentions this um, meal quote from his paper um, that I think we both like, the theoretical risks and tabular asterisks from 1978, mm. where he says, um, where Meal says, it is simply a sad fact that in soft psychology, theories rise and decline, come and go, more as a function of baffled boredom than anything else. And the mm. enterprise shows a disturbing absence of that cumulative character that is so impressive in disciplines like astronomy, molecular biology, and genetics. Mm. Yeah. And it's also such a good point because it is something about our discipline, a bit more than those others. It's just true. Just true. It is true. Um, And it's interesting to think about why. But I think, yeah, these theories, this toothbrush problem, it is actually kind of a nice quote. The measures, of course, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Nice. And what's interesting is that they are, yeah, here they are, Talking about how maybe single studies. Well, actually, let me ask you a question, which they sort of propose mm-hmm. in in the in the in these special issue. All of them, this idea that one of the things that hinders cumulative knowledge generation in psychology is our over reliance on significance testing of like mm-hmm. single one off studies. I don't know mm-hmm. if you agree mm-hmm. or if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think uh, there's a lot of other stuff that we should do to build good theories that mm-hmm. you don't really do with um, just testing stuff. Right. Um, and and we have a paper on this on this other stuff you need to do. So there's this paper, Why Hypothesis Testers Should Just Test Less Hypothesis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, paper. for example, something that I love that's done in other fields mm-hmm. is, yeah, in, in medicine, it's called dose-response curves. So you don't really know how well mm-hmm. something works across an increase of intensity of something. And there it's, of course, the intensity of a drug. But we could often do, okay, but if we have a little bit of cognitive load and then more and then more right. and then a, a lot, what is the effect on what we're measuring of varying this? And then you don't have to test anything. That's not really the issue. You can just plot it. You can plot curves or you can fit models or something. You don't mm-hmm. have to do a hypothesis test. test. You don't have to say it's larger or the effect is smaller in this condition than this. You, you plot it. Just show what the curves are, the response curves across right. intensity differences. So that is one thing I think would be probably very beneficial. 
just as we said in the beginning, when we talk about better understanding our manipulations. Yeah. We don't do seven variations of the intensity of manipulations very often to be better understand how they work. But that's exactly what a well, dose response do. curve kind of... Yeah, so I completely right. agree with this, that, that the focus on hypothesis testing can distract from other studies that people should also do a lot more. Yeah, I know I agree with yeah. that. Yeah, what's, yeah, so here's, I mean, so Patrick says, yeah, that's the dominant issue thought to be responsible for the failure of psychology to progress in a cumulative fashion is over-reliance or reliance in any fashion on significance testing in single sample analysis. So they, so in the special issue, they actually go through a few different methods that you can use to do sort of, yeah, significance testing or sort of model generation in like multiple samples across like how to do it if you have like, you know, data from different hmm. samples yeah. of like scales that have been used that are sort of have different or measurements that have different scales. Hmm. I, I want to read more of this um, yeah. from, from this special issue because it seems very, very interesting. Sounds very interesting, yeah. But on the one end, you do have, so you have single studies, but then you have meta-analyses on yeah. the other end, which people have generally thought of as the sort of ideal thing you should do if you want to create mm -hmm. a cumulative um, if you want yeah. to create cumulative knowledge, right? Because you have not just one study, but you actually look at a whole literature and then you combine the studies and see what you get. But I mean, th those have come under fire, a lot of fire mm -hmm. recently as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where people don't Ideally, think... Ideally, you're yeah. right. Ideally, <laughs> you know, um, uh, the, the best thing that can happen to a researcher is that your study becomes part of a future meta-analysis. I mean, that is sort of how we should think about it because right. it means there's enough done. But then then we get, and the criticism that you mentioned is basically, yeah, but we're throwing all these studies on one big pile, but they're not comparable. They, don't, they don't use, right. again, the same, the same measures, measures. right? not the same manipulations. They don't systematically right. measure variations in context or yeah. samples or whatever. Mm. They So, um, yeah. No, because because it's a little bit of a mess in yeah. terms of measures, manipulations, all this stuff. We can't really do anything sensible in a meta-analysis. Most of the time, sometimes there's standardized procedures, right? right? You can have many studies using the same measures. It can happen. But there are also many fields where this is not remotely true. And then people still do a meta-analysis. But then you're like, yeah, what does this average effect size tell me? Yeah, and in yeah. some disciplines, like in medicine, I'm sure, right? It's a little bit easier you, you know, mm -hmm. if your outcome is like dead versus alive, okay, that can be a standard outcome for all the studies. Yeah. And if you're clear about, okay, these are the populations we're looking at, right, this age group. Yeah, well, it, it happens in psychology as well. I mean, recently we published, there was a co-author on a, a paper, a meta-analysis, actually a meta-analysis over time, looking at the effect over time, mm -hmm. uh, of uh, callback. Um, when you, if you're called back, if you apply for a job, mm. and there are a lot of studies that use this as a measure. Now, ideally, maybe you want to actually see, do you get the job offer? <laughs> yeah. uh, that is a bit more, uh, you know, a bit Valid, more investment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and also you're wasting people's ah, time right, because you're right. not really doing it. <laughs> but, you know, uh, sending in a letter like, hey, I want to apply for this job and then getting an back. invite or not. Mm -hmm. That is seen as something that you can actually do. And then right. they vary all sorts of aspects, in this case, the gender of the right. applicant, for mm -hmm, example. Mm -hmm. And then you can see, okay, do, do more men than women mm -hmm. get, get a call back for an interview? Yeah.
So and and but there the paradigm is the same. For many years, people use this as a measure. Like so audit studies, so, they call them. Yeah, right? we have it. Yeah. So we have it sometimes. Yeah. We have it sometimes. Right. The same measure used for a long time, but in many cases, it's not even close. And but but I think especially also yeah, integrating uh, differences in measures would be useful. Um, I, we we don't really. I feel there's a lot of stuff to do here. Probably well, yeah. that's why they have this special, special. issue in psychological me- methods. Yeah, and like the fact that we ago. don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that's nothing. That's yeah. nothing. Like it, you know, if it hasn't been adopted after 14 years, it means that we we're just slowly warming up to the idea. Yeah. It doesn't mean it was not a good idea. This yeah. is just regrettably sometimes how long it takes for people to adopt something that they should do more. So yeah, yeah, sounds interesting. Good. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, yeah. Meta-analysis, I mean, since we're talking about cumulative science, it felt worth giving a little shout out to meta-analyses because I think they get uh, yeah. a lot of hate. But I think we should work on doing them better and creating a, yeah. a kind of research environment where it's more feasible to do that kind of work. Because, yeah, of course, if we're all doing stuff that has standardized measures, we're all sort of consistent and stuff is more, then, of course, you would it'd be easier to do a meta-analysis and it would mean something. Yeah. And you could actually aggregate stuff across different studies. Yeah. And you see that some large collaborations, such as the Psychological Science Accelerator, Mm -hmm. sometimes tries to do variations of studies and then they collect a lot of data. And this is called a prospective meta-analysis. And this is Hmm. the best version. So where you plan it in Ah, advance, you -hmm. say, look, we are going to do these studies Hmm. and it will take a while. But then in two, three years, we're going to pull all of these studies together. So that's prospective. It's planned. You make Hmm. sure that there's interest stuff there to compare and a prospective method else. yeah hey, no, okay. um, that makes sense yeah and and we talked so this is all about theory testing now i i do want to uh, briefly touch on one other point that michelle also mentions mm-hmm. about um yeah cumulative science uh-huh. and this is basically he calls it collaborative interdisciplinary research Oh, and mm-hmm. this is also, of course, extremely important because we have our theories, but often we need to also know about other disciplines that relate to the topic of interest to really be able to explain human behavior. We often want to talk maybe to an economist or to whoever else is involved in the topic we study, a sociologist, whatever, other disciplines, um, but also between theoretical researchers and applied researchers. You know, mm. if we want to ha- make this research matter in practice. So so I like this uh, last aspect. He calls it boundary crossing and bridge building mm-hmm. research that needs to be done for a cumulative science. Yeah, Right. And I think he gives the example of the cognitive revolution, how that was such a good example of um, researchers yeah. bringing together people from. Yeah, I'm, I definitely don't disagree with this idea. that, But I, I'm curious how you think it actually helps with cumulative science in i mean is is the idea that okay you might have sociologists who are interested in the same phenomena as maybe some psychologists and maybe they're talking about it in completely different ways they're calling it something else mm-hmm. like it's some jingle jangle going on and if you actually talk mm-hmm. to each other it would lead to mm-hmm. more integration like is that what he means no, well, well m- maybe but i think uh, let's say you want to make sure that more children uh, get a degree uh-huh. uh, so they go to uh, college, uh, school yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. but, yeah college you want more of them to leave mm-hmm. college with a degree yeah well uh, psychologists have insights of how to achieve this but other disciplines also have ideas of how to do this and if you want to solve this problem 
you you need to build bridges between these disciplines because probably you need to approach it from multiple perspectives to understand what the issue is. Um, yeah, so I think yeah, something I like this probably. Yeah, okay. I don't disagree with that, but I'm not sure hmm. I totally see how that that in and of itself is helping create a more cumulative science. Well, not for the theory testing part. I think we can do that in isolation. That's hmm. fine. But if you want to solve certain problems, okay. so you're not just building a theory for nothing, but you want a theory to, to make sure that... It. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Doing applied research. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then often there's a lot of interdisciplinary uh, collaboration that's needed or maybe um, working with uh, non-scientists. So you have to work with right. governmental organizations or something like this. And and this whole cluster of things that we sometimes need uh -huh. to bring our science further uh, and maybe test it in practice, for example, this is also part of this reward structure issue because it also takes so much time to build these relationships and have the ability to work together in yeah. an interdisciplinary team to understand mm -hmm. each other. I mean, this jingle jangle thing that you mentioned, yeah. like what are we even talking about? Every interdisciplinary team has that for this first six months. <laughs> right. Who who wants to spend six months saying, but when you use the word X, what do you actually mean <laughs> with the word X? For six months, you're like, you know, I could have written a paper in that time, you know? Yeah. Uh, so in the current reward structure, what are people doing? They're writing that paper. They're not spending six months saying, but when you say, what do you mean with this? I yeah, think we should yeah. get better at that. I think if we mm. took, you know, um, if we followed our philosophy colleagues and just were more explicit about defining our terms, mm -hmm. I think we would all be <laughs> a little bit. I mean, you know, you see this everywhere. Like, yeah, there's a lot of jingle jangle in psychology. I'm sure there's other disciplines mm. where, yeah, the same thing gets called by five different names. I mean, it happens mm. even in statistics all the time, right? It takes yeah, yeah. you like years before you're like, oh, they both mean the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. A panel yeah. study is just a longitudinal study. I'm sorry. Why do we have to call it by three different names? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so so I think this is also a nice aspect of, um, yeah, not so rewarded stuff that right. hinders uh, cumulative science. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, so overall, this blog post points out a number of very good issues that stand in the way. Yeah. And um, yeah, that are very important to solve. And uh, all of them will require quite a lot of work i think so mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's a, a last point that i thought was maybe interesting to mention and that is that um there's so much stuff out there if you <laughs> want to have cumulative science we're publishing so much is this the you're gonna t tell us about the chaos in the brickyard um yeah well that's a good point we didn't mention it at all but uh, that's the metaphor uh of a brickyard where people are producing all these bricks and first they do it for a good cause. They really want to build their theories, but then they're just producing studies just because. Right. Yes. And which, I mean, you will read, you, people would have heard um, you reading it, but the idea mm. is that the goal is to build some structures, which is your theory. Yeah. And it's, it's such a great, yeah, it's such a great metaphor because he mentions that, but in order to create the structure, you need bricks, which are kind of like the facts, right? One-off study mm. that just gives you single facts and he's like it, earlier they were made to order somebody's mm, like i want to develop mm. a theory but i need you know to figure out these things and so you would give it to a younger scholar in your team where they're just creating bricks for the mm -hmm. for the structures and he's like eventually that became an enterprise on its own and people are just creating bricks after bricks with nobody to use them and it's just um yeah. a whole mess there's yeah. just chaos there's just bricks everywhere 
Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this concern that we're just producing too much. Too much, yeah. And that will make it difficult to integrate everything. Right. It's very old. I mean, yeah. uh, it's going going back a long time. There's yeah. a, a paper I, I read by Smart, um, 1964. He says, mm -hmm. at, at the time when scientific papers are being produced at an approximate rate of 3.8 articles per minute... <laughs> Caution must attend any effort to further increase their volume. But this was 1964. We were just getting started. <laughs> I mean, it has yeah. become way more than, than it's that. It's so much. Yeah. 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 There's so much and, stuff getting published. Yeah. Yeah. And, and okay, Daniel, did I not remember you from a long, long time ago saying that we should publish everything and that we should, right now there's things like Sci-Archive and Bi-Archive, right? Where you can just put stuff yeah. up and... You were in favor of just putting everything out. And I was like, I don't think so. There's too much stuff to wade through already. Yeah, I think we can resolve it maybe by agreeing that we should publish everything, but we shouldn't start everything <laughs> that we okay. want to start. Okay. You know? All right. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to stop people in advance and say, yeah. no, no, you can't don't, do that. No, not another one. Uh. No, no. No tenure um, for you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is, of course, very difficult to do. I mean, uh, but so there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff being generated that makes it difficult to integrate. And mm -hmm. also, we like to do the easier stuff and not the more difficult things. Right. Um, there, there's another nice metaphor that um, Dorothy Bishop also mentions, uh, Ottoline Leiser. She's now the chief executive of the... United Kingdom Research Institute or something, a okay. UKRI. I don't know mm -hmm. what it stands for. Anyway, but she um, she talks about this tendency. It's sort of related to chaos in the brickyard, mm -hmm. uh, but she has a, a another metaphor. She says, there's an awful lot of talk about groundbreaking research, mm. uh, which I find an interesting <laughs> comparison because <laughs> groundbreaking is what you do when you start a building. You go into a field mm. and you dig a hole in the ground. If you're only rewarded for groundbreaking research, mm. there's going to be an awful lot of fields with a small hole in <laughs> and no buildings. <laughs> so she has almost Very the same. Cool. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe she read Chaos in the Brickyard. Maybe. maybe it's inspired by it, Very but it's the good. same. Yeah. But then even a bit more specific about, you know, the groundbreaking stuff. And I think... Uh, we have a lot of stuff that's difficult to integrate, but it would actually become, well, it's actually, as you mentioned before, like when we do the replications and we really figure out what's the difference here. So we do all this extra work, this harder work, that is the necessary stuff right. to integrate things. Yeah. But instead, we just have very large literatures with a lot of sort of interesting new findings, exciting new findings, yeah. but not all the other research we need to start to compare it or, yeah. Yeah. The structure, yeah. And I was thinking of, I mean, to extend the analogy to replications, I thought replications would be like going and inspecting individual bricks and throwing out the ones that you realize are actually not used, you know, they're just shoddy mm -hmm. bricks. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe yeah. that has some use, right, um, if done correctly. But that's, mm -hmm. but like I said, right, it should only be done by people who are actually interested in building something, right? They should go mm -hmm. out and be like, is this brick the right one? You know, will this hold up the structure? And then if not, you throw it out. If and and then they would go looking for other bricks. Yeah, we are yeah. spreading this metaphor very thin, but uh, <laughs> but it's working but so still, far. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it's interesting, and um, yeah, and the production of too many. I mean, it it would also. I think it would also slow research down if we mm -hmm. would do more of those studies because they are just right. more difficult. Yeah, really figuring out what's going on here is much more difficult than doing a novel new thing about a new. Yeah. So, 
so it would slow us down, but in right. a good way, because yeah. we need to be slowed down a little bit because, yeah, um, the, the same, uh, one of the first sort of meta scientific papers, it's, uh, I think it's called Little Science, Big Science, is also about this increase in scale. It's by a uh, price. Mm. Um, and he, he also discusses that, yeah, um, science sort of has an exponential growth function. Uh -huh. He actually, he does realize in the book, like, okay, but it can't grow exponentially forever, of course. That mm -hmm. would be crazy. So it has to slow down. Yeah. But in any case, this is somewhere in, um, I think, 1986. Mm. Um, he, he basically plots it and he says, look how great... Uh, science is growing. And I think it hasn't slowed down a lot. I think we're producing more and more papers. So we, we are not, he says, yeah, eventually the curve will have to go down, I guess, but it doesn't look like we're there. We're just producing so much stuff. I mean, yeah. So that's yeah. also a challenge for cumulative science because you can't integrate all it that It is work. very challenging. And I wonder if one of the issues is just more funding. Like if, well, I wonder if funding has to dry up mm. at some point for, for things to slow down. Uh, that would be so sad. It I would understand. be sad. No, I understand I, I, the yeah, point. Right. I completely understand. It would yeah. force people, people to be like, to, okay, yeah. we can't do everything. What are we going to do? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that would be a very sad solution for the, I hope I we can agree. figure out a better one. Yeah. But, but, you, but you're right. I mean, the intention, you, you all almost feel like yeah people yeah but you know i don't think it will work because the system is just uh people will just start to do even more online studies and uh, easier research you know mm. they would just cut out the difficult even mm. more of the <laughs> difficult stuff and they would never do an interdisciplinary project and never go and work on applied research because that all takes more time so then yeah. they would just like hey you give me more money well what am i gonna cut out yeah mm, the harder stuff maybe yeah maybe yeah yeah, it's certainly possible. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just so un unsustainable, like the amount of work that gets published now. Yeah, it's yeah way too much to yeah integrate or even yeah. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about more, but I feel it's not necessarily problematic that we do a lot but it's like this prospective meta-analysis i like this effect of a mm. prospective meta like we sit down in advance we say what are we all going to do because in two years we can combine it now in a meta-analysis it's just combining pooling the studies we mm -hmm. don't do anything weird but you could you know and this is what people have been talking about we have also mentioned this these um, large experiments that you design where you have a lot of factors and you're going to manipulate everything so these huge mega yeah. studies kind mm -hmm, of things mm -hmm, we talked mm -hmm. about it before um but but those would have yeah those solve this problem basically of the lack of integration the difficulty of integrating things so right. sitting down in advance in some way and saying hey what do we need and now let's go uh, about and do it. And we can be very productive and do a lot of studies, but then that we know how to integrate them in a while, that yeah. I think would really be beneficial. Yeah. 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 Eventually, I'm sure you can pull it all on a big pile and, and figure it out. But um, oh, I, was, I thought you were going to so say effortful. set it on fire. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, some, some things, maybe some things. Maybe AI I mean, can uh, help us. Maybe AI is going to save oh, yes, us. Exactly. Yeah, That's we're it. just going to feed it. We'll just all read all the papers and integrate everything, everything into yeah. a theory of everything. Yeah. Yes. A theory of oh, everyone. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, perfect. then. We could just sit down and just make sure that everything is openly available somewhere and then yeah. AI will fix it. Oh, fix it great. For us. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Nullius in Verba. Our theme song is Newton's Cradle by Grand Brothers. 
If you have any thoughts, feedback, or comments you'd like to share, you can reach us over email at nelliusandverbapod at gmail.com or our social media accounts at Mastodon or Twitter. In this episode, we discussed the barriers to cumulative science, such as a lack of standardized measures and theories. In the next episode, we will discuss an approach to theory building by Robert Dubin, who provides an eight-step method. We hope you will join us.